This is Victoria, producer for The Felon File, a podcast on law enforcement history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains of the United States and beyond. Listen to in 39 countries around the world. Scott Lunsford hosts The Felon File. Scott is a retired American police sergeant. Background and intro music through purpleplanet.com. Shine on. Deep in the hills where the trees stand tall, lives a brew that's loved by all. A drink that's strong and clear as day. Moonshine's the name that's here to stay. Distilled in secret, it's worth its weight in gold. A taste of history that's brave and bold. For those who seek it and bring the cash, the moonshiners safely stash. But be warned, for law enforcement is on the rise. Their watchful eyes search the moonshine skies. To stop the making and the selling too. They'll do what it takes to make the law come through. So, heed this tale of money, history, law, and more. The story of moonshine is forever etched in law. Poem written by Scott. Welcome back to another episode of The Felon File. And as Victoria said, I am your host, Scott Lunsford, former Sergeant Detective, Asheville, North Carolina Police Department, uh, writer, researcher, wearer of many hats. Our podcast, The Felon File, is a collection is a collection of stories, what we refer to as Shade of Blue stories, where we look at crimes and issues and incidents that have occurred in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond there. Thank you, Victoria, for opening us up. We do appreciate that. And those of you who would like to, you can drop Victoria line at felonfile at gmail.com. She would love to hear from you, as so would I. You can check out our website, felonfile.com. Dot com or just simply drop us an email at felonfile at gmail.com. Today we're talking about moonshine. Moonshine 101. There's an author and a writer of stories and teller of tall tales by the name of Frank Fitzsimmons wrote a long time ago that the moonshiners, they honestly felt that it was their inalienable right to make it. They thought the government was unreasonable for sending law enforcement officers to search for and destroy their copper stills and arrest those they caught operating them. Now it's said that back in the day nearly everyone made whiskey, brandy, and beer. Most are produced for personal use. Some made a serious business enterprise out of it. And that's not just here in the Appalachian Mountains, that's about anywhere and on any continent. Moonshine earned its name because it was often produced in the moonlight shroud of night to avoid detection by law enforcement. The story of moonshining is closely tied to American history. Taxes on liquor were enacted during George Washington's presidency to help pay much needed revenue after the Revolutionary War. The young country became one of the first in the world to enact such a tax. And to say it was unpopular would really be an understatement, to say the least. 
Pennsylvania farmers relied on homemade liquor to supplement their income and use excess crops. In violent acts of protest, liquor tax collectors in the state were ambushed, stripped naked, tarred, and feathered. The ordeal became known as the Whiskey Rebellion, often cited as the first significant test of the federal authority in the United States. Moonrunners and blockaders, distillers and men who worked for them, transported liquor at breakneck speeds throughout the mountains, serpentine roads, trying to outsmart and outdrive revenuers and the law. Uh, the famous movie that was actually filmed not too far from where we're at right now, in the 1950s, Thunder Road, comes to mind. In the earlier decade of the 20th century, North Carolina Wilkes County gained a lot of infamy as a kind of the blockade liquor capital of America. Uh, by the late 1940s, runners further souped up their vehicles, repurposing them for the most part for sport and profit. This is the precursor of NASCAR. Whether intended for recreational or medical use, liquor production once prevailed deep within the hollers and ridges of the Appalachian Mountains. People would whisper about Cathead, Reedy Patch, Max Patch, Chun's Cove, Sodom Laurel, The Follies, The Dark Corner, Spillcorn, locations that were thought to be notorious for producing this spirit beverage. At Crab Creek Cove in Henderson County, there was a spot known as the Notorious Cathead. Not far from there, the Dark Corner lay within the laurel thickets and thick brush and trees where Henderson County and Polk Counties and Rutherford Counties meet near the North Carolina-South Carolina border. Runners, generally the sons of distillers, ran blockade liquor to the buyers, fending off the curious trespassers and, and the law itself. Now the chemistry of making liquor, simply the conversion of grain into sugar, it's a very simple process. It involves boiling, vaporizing, distilling, and then distilling again. It's basic middle school chemistry. When I was in the 10th grade, we built a still using the typical components found at a high school laboratory. The liquid is heated, the resulting vapor passed through a condenser to recondense, where the distillate drops slowly into a receiving glass flask. Usually the condenser consists of two tubes between which a cold water current flows upward or in the opposite direction of the liquid being distilled to help cool it faster and cause the condensation to turn into liquid quicker. Backwoodsmen's employed these same principles but with more rustic measures. And of course, they did so on a larger scale, even more so if you were commercially producing the product on a, on a big stage. A container such as a soap kettle or any other large metal containment was set on a wood-burning furnace. The blockader placed the lid on the kettle with a cap arm or horse's head as it was sometimes referred to, which stretched into another vessel. This vessel had the colorful name of the worm box. Some distillers engaged a vessel between the still and the worm box, steam barrel, called a 
thumping chest for the sound that it made as the liquid went through it and cooled. From the steam barrel, a stretch of copper tubing, coil known as the worm, conveyed vapors to the worm box where cold water passed over it. A spigot near the base of the worm box dribbled the finished product into a holding container, a barrel, a bucket, crockery jug, or a canning jar or mason jar. Though they were crude and the contraptions and apparatuses were quite functional, with many of them being situated within the laurels and hollers within reach of a creek or a spring branch. Blockaders sometimes constructed makeshift sheds over their stills in order to hide them. Others chopped down trees or planted a quick-growing cane or bamboo uh, to conceal their operation. And this kind of explains why when you're deer hunting in some of the more out-of-the-way locations in the Appalachian Mountains, you may come across Asian bamboo growing in laurel thickets in the middle of nowhere. I've, I've seen this myself. In theory, the process is quite simple. Mass production, though, can make it a little complicated. A common recipe for making moonshine calls for steeping grain, traditionally corn and or rye, in water, which will slowly percolate through the grain over two or three days. As water is leached through this mix, the distiller replenishes the supply until the grain sprouts. Process converted starch to sugar, a method used as a substitute for malt. This sprouted grain, dried, ground, and added to boiling water, results in what is referred to as the mash, which required regular monitoring and stirring. A rye malt might be added at this time, or sometimes sugar or molasses. Yeast might also be incorporated. The moonshiner will at this point carefully monitor the temperature of the mash and this is an essential part so as not to kill the yeast microbes and bacteria that make the alcohol alcohol. When yeast was not available, the distillers allow their mash to stand for 8 to 10 days making a fermented uh, mixture or a sour mash or what's referred to as a wash, what we would probably call beer today basically a suspension of carbonic acid and alcohol. The wash would then be returned to the still for condensation. The final product dribbled out from the condenser into a container and this was the first distillation of the liquid which would be probably distilled a second time or a third time to refine it and intensify the resulting product known in the business as doubling. After doubling the liquid, it would be tested to determine its proof. Now, a moonshiner didn't need any fancy equipment to do this. The liquid would be checked in a glass jar, and the proof would be estimated by how the liquid beat it up. He watched for a soapy appearance with bubbles rising to the top of the liquid to determine its proof. Uh, a skill oftentimes passed down from father to son that were involved in the manufacturing process. Now passing this test, the liquor might be run through a charcoal filter to kind of clean it up and remove any possible residential fuel oil that might be found there. The average yield from a bushel of corn equal to about two and a half gallons. 
and a typical backwoods blockader or moonshiner can produce between 10 to 50 gallons of moonshine a day. Now, that's a lot of work, and on a large scale, as if it wasn't complicated and time-consuming enough, maintaining a distillery posed other problems. That nighttime glow of the fire in the furnace while you're heating the mash, the aroma of uh, simmering mash would attract the attention of whistleblowing neighbors, the sheriff, revenue agents, and other members of law enforcement, or possibly even competition. This resulted in the possible arrest, the complication of the still, or at the very least, damage to the still that could not be repaired, usually by shooting the still up with handguns or rifles or shotguns, axes knocking holes and cuts into the sides of the boilers, and even times sometimes rolling the boiler itself or the still itself down the mountain. The worm or the coil of the condenser was a highly prized trophy for law enforcement and the revenuers, usually brought back to the courthouse to show how well you were doing. Blockaders were fined and arrested, and they in turn occasionally wounded or killed government agents and formers and law enforcement officials. Even with all this going on, the blockader would fall back on his stubborn pride, refusing to pay taxes on their homemade spirits. These are the same families that fled from Scotland and Ireland and Wales to avoid taxation to the United States or the New World. They felt what came from their land was theirs to do with as they pleased. Now in 1908, a referendum was passed that made North Carolina the first southern state to prohibit the production and sell of alcohol. After that time, the blockade business became even stealthier. Attempts to enforce laws banning the distribution and sale of contraband spirits instigated frequent cases of violence and murder. Henderson County native and history junkie John Paul Jones in an interview claims that more revenuers were killed in an area called Reedy Patch off of Hog Rock Road, uh, County Road 1703 in Edneyville. Edneyville being the location of one of the state of North Carolina's Justice Academies. More revenuers were killed there, he said, than any other place in North Carolina. A lot of this occurring after the enforcement of prohibition and with the temperance uh, movement being in effect. Article in the 1912 French Broad Hustler newspaper, local paper of Henderson County and Buncombe County, stated, one of the most giant stills ever captured in North Carolina was put out of business Saturday morning by revenue agents Will Harkins, Constable Connor, and Mac Bryson and Will Hudson in the Chen's Cove area, 12 miles southeast of Chimney Rock. Constable Connor stated that the raiders visited the place Friday night and began the devastation about daylight on Saturday. At the same time, it was still hot from Friday's operation when it was destroyed. He stated that the still was of a 240-gallon capacity and that 7,000 or 8,000 gallons of beer, 10 bushels of meal, and 5 bushels of corn malt were destroyed in addition to the complete 
outfit that was represented an outlay of about three hundred dollars in 1912 money the copper still was so large that the raiders weren't able to take it away with them still they punctured it several times to the point of it being useless constable corner saved the cap and worm as a relic and has them in the courthouse on exhibit it required nearly two hours to play havoc with the plant which is understood had been in operation for about two years no arrests were made as no owners were located at the time of the stills destruction many of the home distillers did produce liquor for their personal and recreational use not to mention medical use including brandy from fruits and berries and beer doctors and drug stores in the high countries were sometimes hard to come by or get to granny women also called root women or root doctors would dose their patients with spirits as a curative or temporary relief from the symptoms of upper respiratory disorders and other elements many having memorized their cures and their methods be after being passed down to them or to their ancestors from the native americans from the new country and the old medications and treatments including including the antiseptic and pain numbing anti-inflammatory qualities of liquor counted among many of the home remedies blockaders sometimes though did taint their formulas resulting in dangerous concoctions these were known as pop skull these brews at times ended up proving fatal particularly when distillers contaminated the blend with lye or lye soap on the other hand even unadulterated liquor could be dangerous to those who consume too much of it typically the double process draft yielded a proof of 140 to 170 uh, which is equivalent to 70 to 85 percent alcohol purity today in addition to unlawful blockading locations referred to as blind tigers more commonly known as today as speakeasies these existed the french broad hustler noted occasions of arrest in the downtown hendersonville north carolina area of dixie cafe and the central cafe in the early 1900s north carolina supreme court records list many convictions of distillers in western north carolina one of those being in henderson county which you can find in state versus john blackwell filed with north carolina supreme court december 15 1920 and involved blackwell and is still at a location known as big hungry sheriff allard case born 1882 passed away in 1954 made the arrest even though blackwell told him he was fixing to make whiskey for his own use but you got me before i made any now, according to court records, it was about a 35-gallon copper still. The cap and copper worm or coil weren't present there at the location. Blackwell claimed he wasn't making whiskey at the time of the arrest and while he was being observed by the sheriff, but he was fixing to. He never denied he was going to, just that he wasn't doing it at the time. He was just making preparation. On the stand, Sheriff case recalled uh, 
Quote, when I caught Blackwell, he said he was fixing to make some whiskey for his own use. The district attorney asked him, what is it exactly he said? Sheriff Case answered, he said, you got me before I made any. At the close of the state's evidence, the defendant moved for a judgment as of non-suit to have the matter thrown out. The motion was overruled and the jury returned a verdict of guilty. Blackwell was given a sentence of 12 months and was assigned to be working on the public roads detail, serving his time in Henderson County. Now, of course, the defendant appealed and the North Carolina Supreme Court got the case. After review of the evidence, they found it was sufficient to support the verdict and goes beyond the proof of preparation to commit the crime of manufacturing intoxicating liquor. It was true the cap and worm were not present. The still was there, but it was just a big container, but they would not be needed for a week. And in the meantime, the defendant was engaged in one of the processes of manufacturing. He had not produced any of the completed products, but he was manufacturing it as rapidly as he could, knowing that he could get the cap and the worm and they would be available when the beer was ready for distillation. The sheriff had also testified that the still had been used before which in the absence of explanation permitted the inference that the defendant had been manufacturing at some other point and was thus engaged in changing his location or moving his operation from his previous setup. And that's why the cap and the coil or worm weren't present. Well, his attorney's appealments logic was basically saying, saying a bomb's not a bomb until it blows up. Beginning to commit a crime was not the same as actually committing it. Therefore, the defendant was not guilty of manufacturing illegal whiskey. Well, the courts disagreed wholeheartedly. And the guilty plea was upheld. Another case heard before the North Carolina Supreme Court that had a bearing on the previous case dealt with the excuse kind of of, uh, yeah, I was there, but I didn't do it. And that involved a W.P. Horton, A.C. Ray, and a J. Brown, who were the defendants in the case. They were found guilty, and it was sent to the North Carolina Superior Court on appeal. This is what happened, or as they say on TV, this is their story. Now, the Reverend George Perry, he testified in court that he is now and was during the month of September 1919, the pastor of the Methodist Episcopal Church in Chatham County, North Carolina, that for the purpose of aiding in the enforcement of the law prohibiting the manufacture and sale of intoxicating liquor, he had accepted an appointment as a deputy sheriff of Catcham County. Now, on the night of the 7th of September, 1919, Information came to him of a location of an illegal whiskey-making enterprise. He, with five of his other citizens from the community, went to a place in the woods in Ketchum County where they found several boxes of beer, which was still beer, in the state of fermentation for being converted into whiskey. Nearby, they discovered a furnace under which there was ashes and coals to show that it had been used in the past. 
that there were buckets and tools in place all around the place, around the furnace, and there were tracks and pathways indicating that there had been several people there fairly recently. But no still was located. He and the members of his posse hid in the woods and around 2 o'clock in the morning on September 8th, which just so happens to be my wife and my sister's birthday, Cooper and Horton arrived at the place where the boxes of beer in the furnace were, bringing with them this whiskey still, which they placed on the furnace. Cooper and Horton remained there for some time, setting up the still and connecting up the different parts, adjusting the cap, and collecting firewood. After doing so, they examined the beer mash and then they both left. The good reverend and members of his party remained in the woods, concealed, and watched until the defendants returned, Perry and Horton. They came back to the distillery. Cooper did not return with them, but both began to work about the distillery, cutting and gathering woods, placing the joining the furnace and the still together, and they expected the beer from time to time that while they did this, the preacher and his posse attempted to arrest both men, but when they saw the preacher and posse, they took off without being caught, but were located later and criminally charged and sent to court where the original county court in Ketchum County found them guilty, all three of them. Now in court, they, they tried the defense. Well, we really didn't actually make any moonshine, so you can't charge us with doing so. Now they were all three found guilty. On appeal, the court said, uh, no, you were making shine. You just weren't quite done with it yet. Stating that it's not necessary for the state to prove directly that the distillery was in operation at that very moment. The circumstances and evidence were sufficient to warrant the jury in coming to the conclusion that they were engaged in the business of illegal distilling. They just weren't done yet. It should be noted, though, in 2005, the first legal moonshine, a term that's kind of an oxymoron, was introduced to liquor store shelves with the introduction of Piedmont Distillers Cat Daddy Carolina Moonshine. As North Carolina's first legal distillery since Prohibition, located in the Piedmont of North Carolina, and still around, is actually part of moonshining and its history. And there would be a lot more to follow suit. Now, by definition, moonshine is technically illegally distilled liquor. However, the jars and bottles sold in today's liquor stores are perfectly legal to buy, sell, and safe to drink. Still, many are, are made by adhering to time-honored recipes that have been passed down through families and have been around for a very long time. That's our Shade of Blue story on Moonshine 101. Hope you found it interesting. There is some very interesting literature out there on moonshine history, not only in the Appalachian Mountains, but in the Chicago Prohibition era and elsewhere in the United States, as well as different countries in the world. Interesting information to look up.
Well, if you have the opportunity to check out our website, as I said earlier, we're at felonfile.com, or you can find us also at scottlunsfordauthor.com, where you can check out some of my books and writing, as well as some information on various things that we're working on. We'd love to get some feedback from you. You can email us at felonfile at gmail.com or through the link at our websites. Also, there's a link to some of our Felon File stuff pages where you can pick up some t-shirts or coffee mugs or other objects designating you as a Felon File listener. We really appreciate that. And it does help us a little bit with funding some of the requests. You wouldn't believe how much it costs to get information on an old FBI case for your research on the Freedom of Information Act. They just don't give that stuff away. you got to pay per copy of the page. And I can see that to a degree. Anyway, be sure to come back week after next for another episode of The Fallon File, another Shade of Blue story we'll have for you. And if you'd like, you can go to our main page, check out some of our previous episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Feel free to listen to. We have over 200 of them on file. Some of them are better than others, and some of them ain't. You can take a listen and decide for yourself. In the meantime, remember in the upcoming weeks, before we come back, if you have the opportunity, do something good for somebody. It's the right thing to do. And more people need to be doing the right thing. Be safe and be secure. And we'll talk to you guys later. Bye, y'all. This has been The Felon File, a discussion on law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and other parts of the world. For more information, you can go to felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com. Here you can find links to Scott and Num books and other information. You can also email us at felonfile at gmail.com. There are also t-shirts and mugs available. You can also buy us a cup of coffee. Or help purchase some of the research material and expenses it takes to do felon file. Click on the coffee image on the web page to do so. This is Victoria your producer thank you for listening. Have a good one.